The following episode may not be suitable for younger listeners. Who doesn't love a good scary movie? Especially around Halloween time. Well, maybe they aren't for everyone, but for those who do love scary movies, it can be hard to find one that feels unique. Horror movies can be a bit formulaic. A group of teens get trapped in a spooky backwoods community. Or kids get picked off one by one by a masked individual. Or a house has a hidden secret that the new unsuspecting family doesn't know about when they move in. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but even those exceptions will have their ideas borrowed from eventually. Sometimes, horror movies can be inspired by a real-life event, which oftentimes can make them even scarier. You're watching a film with actors, but in the back of your mind, you know that something similar actually happened. There are far too many examples to name in a single podcast episode, but I'll list some of the big ones that come to mind. 2007's Borderlands follows three confident college students who decide to go to Mexico for a good time. After a night of drinking with a couple of local girls, one of the friends goes missing. When the friend wakes up, he realizes he's been taken to a remote hideout where he's set to become a human sacrifice for a sinister Mexican drug lord and cult leader. Borderlands is based mostly on the real-life story of Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, Constanzo was a serial killer, drug dealer, and cult leader who led an occult gang that the press nicknamed Los Narcos Satanicos. In the mid-80s, Costanzo moved to Mexico City and quickly gathered a following. He ran a profitable business casting spells to bring good luck, using chickens, goats, snakes, zebras, and lion cubs as ritual sacrifices. Eventually, the crew began grave robbing for human bones to add to their rituals. They soon realized, however, that their power would grow even more with human sacrifices. The cult took the lives of over 20 victims in a span of three years. Constanzo's final step was to secure the brain of an American student. A college student named Mark Kilroy was abducted and murdered during his spring break trip in 1989. 1979's The Amityville Horror tells the story of a young couple and their house in Amityville, New York, which is haunted by violent spirits. Five years before the film's release, a man named Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six members of his own family at his home at 108 Ocean Avenue on the shore of Long Island, New York. He was convicted of second-degree murder in November 1975 and sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life in prison. DeFeo died just last year. In December of 1975, George and Kathy Lutz bought the house on Ocean Avenue and moved in with their three children. Less than a month later, the Lutzes fled the house, claiming to have been terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living there. A book was written, a movie was made, and most of the claims have since been debunked, but the family certainly experienced something that DeFeo left behind. The Conjuring universe of films is the highest-grossing horror franchise worldwide. The franchise includes three Conjuring titles as part of the main series, as well as three Annabelle films, and 2019's The Curse of La Llorona, with more spin-offs planned. 
The films were written around the real-life cases and experiences of the husband and wife paranormal investigative team of Ed and Lorraine Warren. The main series focuses on the Warrens' attempts at helping people possessed by demonic spirits. The spin-off movies focus on the origins of some of the strange entities that the Warrens have come across in their career. The Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. After countless books written about their investigations, the couple were some of the first people to set foot in the aforementioned Amityville home. It was this case that really put them on the map while also making them a target for critics and non-believers. The Annabelle series of films was written about a Raggedy Ann doll that the Warrens came into contact with. In 1968, while investigating a possession, two roommates claimed their Raggedy Ann doll was possessed by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. The Warrens removed the doll from the home and secured it behind glass at the family's occult museum. I'll post some pictures of her on Curator135.com. Ed Gain was a murderer and body snatcher from the late 1950s, whose infatuation with his deceased mother led him to doing all sorts of unspeakable things with skin and body parts. This monster, in some way, helped to inspire Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as well as the Buffalo Bill character from Silence of the Lambs. Another notable film that had its origins in non-fiction events was 1963's The Birds, which was written after reading about the mass bird attack and death in the seaside town of Capitola, California in 1961. Newspapers wrote about bird rain and how thousands of gall-like birds inexplicably began dive-bombing houses and power lines. Author William Peter Blatty wrote the novel The Exorcist after reading about an actual exorcism from 1949. A 14-year-old boy from Maryland was introduced to Ouija boards by his aunt. When the aunt passed away, the family began experiencing seemingly paranormal activity in the house and the boy became possessed by a dark entity. 1982's Poltergeist features a family who realized that their home was built on an ancient Indian burial ground. The idea came from events that took place in 1958, where a Seaford family known as the Hermans claimed to be victims of paranormal activities. The story garnered so much attention that Life magazine came out and did a story on the home. The Nightmare on Elm Street series can thank a smattering of 70s and 80s stories from the Los Angeles Times that described Hmong refugees from China experiencing such vivid and disturbing dreams that they died in the middle of them. The Scream series was inspired by the real-life Gainesville Ripper. Wolf Creek came about after the writer read stories of Australians Ivan Malat, who killed at least seven tourists between 1989 and 1993, and Bradley John Murdoch, who was found guilty for the murder of an English backpacker named Peter Falconio in the year 2005. Even water-based horror has some roots in real life. 1974's book Jaws, written by Peter Benchley, and the follow-up Jaws movie in 1975 were inspired by a man named Frank Mundus, who caught a 4,500-pound great white shark off the shores of Long Island and then dragged it back to shore. 2003's Open Water centers on an American couple accidentally left behind after a scuba diving excursion while on vacation. The true story isn't that much different. In 1998, Tom and Eileen Lonergan went out to explore the Great Barrier Reef with the Outer Edge Dive Company and were accidentally left behind because the dive boat crew failed to take an accurate headcount. So there is some accuracy in the old adage that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction.
Let's get into one example of real-life cinematic inspiration that really caught my eye. Episode 48, based on true events. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the Phantom Killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in The Town That Dreaded Sundown, starring Academy Award winner Ben Johnson as Captain J.D. Morales of the Texas Rangers. We got a cold-blooded killer here, a man who nobody sees, a phantom who so far hasn't made any mistakes. Andrew Prine as Deputy Norman Ramsey of the Texarkana Sheriff's Department. The only thing we really do know is that we've got a very strange person on our hands. <laughs> the town that dreaded sundown. A true story. The Town That Dreaded Sundown held its world premiere in Texarkana on December 17, 1976, before being shown in theaters nationwide on Christmas Eve the following week. The film was directed and produced by Charles B. Pierce, the man behind 1972's cult classic The Legend of Boggy Creek. The movie is narrated throughout by the man you heard in the trailer, Vern Stearman. Ben Johnson, who'd starred in movies like Hang 'em High with John Wayne, and Chisholm, with Clint Eastwood, played the character of Captain J.D. Morales. Andrew Prine, who starred in dozens of movies as well as TV shows like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Hawaii Five-O, and The Bionic Woman, played Deputy Norman Ramsey. The man who played the Phantom was Bud Davis. You never see his face, but he went on to become a stunt coordinator on films like Forrest Gump, Castaway, and Inglorious Bastards. The film was shot in and around Texarkana, and even used a number of locals as extras. Alright, first, let's learn more about Texarkana, which sounds like a fictional city you'd come up with for a location in a novel. In the books I write, but never finish, I always tend to use the name Westville, which comes from neighboring cities to mine, Westland and Northville. Texarkana is a city in eastern Texas. It has a twin city that connects to it across the border in Arkansas. So there are two Texarkanas, and they touch. Texarkana, Texas, and Texarkana, Arkansas. Both are also near the border of Louisiana, which doesn't have a Texarkana. The Texarkana sister cities are also near Oklahoma. No Texarkana for them either, but the two Texarkanas are within the area known as the Arklatex region. The Arklatex region includes parts of Oklahoma, but doesn't include any parts of the state's name in its region name. I think Arklatex-Ahoma has a nice ring to it, but they didn't ask me. 
Good, we got that all cleared up. The events that the movie was based upon took place mainly around Bowie County, which is on the Texas side of things. The film's tagline, however, claims that the man who killed five people still lurks in the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. This led officials in the Arkansas city to threaten Pierce over the ads in 1977. The thought of a masked murderer hiding behind every corner was not going to lend itself to attracting tourists. The film states that, The incredible story you're about to see is true, where it happened, and how it happened. Only the names have been changed. Artistic license was taken, of course, but the plot of the movie sticks fairly close to the actual events. But what are these actual events? Let's find out. Up until 1945, Texarkana, Texas was one of those sleepy little towns, surrounded by farms and full of down-home folk who left their doors unlocked and knew everyone in town. On Friday, February 22, 1946, at around 11.45 p.m., all of that changed. 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, 19-year-old Mary Jean LeRae, had just finished watching a movie together at the local movie theater. The couple parked on Lover's Lane, which was just outside the city limits. Ten minutes after they parked, a man wearing a white cloth mask, either a pillowcase or sack with eye holes cut out, appeared at the driver's side door. The startled couple shielded their eyes as the man shone a flashlight through the window. Hollis informed the man that whoever he was, he had the wrong person. The masked individual responded by saying, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say. The man ordered the couple out of the car and told Hollis to remove his pants. Hollis did as he was told, but the man still struck him in the head twice with the butt of his gun. The sound of the gun fracturing Hollis's skull was so loud that Mary Jean thought the man had fired his weapon. The young lady showed the man Hollis's wallet to prove that he had no money. The man responded by striking her in the head with either the flashlight or the gun. Stand up, he ordered her. Now run. Mary Jean took off towards a nearby ditch, but the man instructed her to instead run up the road. As she ran, she spotted an old car parked off the road. The car was empty, and the attacker caught up with her and asked, Why are you running? She replied that he had told her to do so. You're a liar, he responded. He knocked her down and assaulted her. After the assault, Mary Jean ran away as fast as she could and ran a half mile before seeing a house. She woke up its residents who then called the police. Back by the car, Jimmy Hollis had regained consciousness and stopped a passing automobile. The person inside raced home and also phoned the police. Nearly 30 minutes later, Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack. The masked man was long gone. Both Jimmy and Mary Jean spent time in the hospital. Hollis was hospitalized for several days where he recovered from multiple skull fractures. Mary Jean LeRae believed that it was a light-skinned black man under the hood. Jimmy Hollis believed it to be a tanned white man. They agreed that the man had been around six feet tall. Due to the nature of the crime, law enforcement officers believed that the young couple knew who their attacker was and that they were covering for him for whatever reason. The case received little attention in the papers, as most people assumed it was a one-off random event. A little over a month later, things would heat up when a second couple was attacked, and now the assailant had worked up the courage to do what he couldn't do to Jimmy and Mary Jean. On March 24th of 1946, 
A passing motorist spotted a vehicle parked near a different lover's lane south of U.S. Highway 67 West. At first glance, he thought that maybe the young lovers were asleep. Then he noticed the blood. 29-year-old Richard Griffin and the girl he'd been dating for a month and a half, 17-year-old Pollyann Moore, were both deceased. When authorities arrived, they found Griffin between the front seats, on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was lying face down in the back seat. Griffin, they surmised, was shot twice inside the car, while it appeared that Moore had been shot outside the car on a blanket and then moved to the back seat. Police found a 32 cartridge casing outside the vehicle. Rumors circulated through town that, like Mary Jean LeRae, Pollyann Moore had been assaulted, but their bodies were never examined by a pathologist. These murders caught the attention of the media, as word quickly spread throughout the area. On March 31st, the sheriff's office offered a $500 reward to anyone with information. Three weeks later, the masked man would strike again. At 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, April 14th, 17-year-old Paul Martin picked up his friend, 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker. She'd performed her saxophone as part of an orchestra that evening at the VFW Club at West Forth and Oak Street. It was the last time anyone would see them alive. Paul Martin's body was found at 6.30 a.m. by a passing motorist. He was lying on his left side near the edge of North Park Road. Blood was found on the other side of the road, suggesting that he'd tried to flee after being shot in the face, the ribs, the right hand, and the back of the neck. Betty Joe's body was found five hours later, and nearly two miles away, by a search party. She was found lying on her back, fully clothed, and posed with her right hand in the pocket of her coat. She'd been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. Police found evidence of the same type of weapon as the first murders, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. A note of interest, Martin's car was found three miles away from Booker's body and a mile and a half away from Martin's. The keys were still in the ignition, and Booker's saxophone was gone. Neither child seemed to have any enemies. A third couple had been attacked in as many months. The FBI was called in. The events were linked and worked on in unison with different police departments, and panic was fully setting in around town. Near the end of April, a woman working at the San Antonio Music Company in Paris, Texas, reported that a man around 30 years old with red hair had come into her shop offering to sell her a Bundy saxophone, similar to the one belonging to Betty Jo Booker. When the young woman offered to get the store manager, the man became agitated and left. The police took him into custody, but never located a weapon or the saxophone. They did find blood-splattered clothing, but he claimed it was his blood, which was a result of a bar fight he'd gotten into. Around the same time, Betty Jo's mother, Bessie, was quoted in the press that she trusts the men who are handling the investigation, and that she was sure they will find whoever did it, and if he is caught, I'd like to kill him myself. Three weeks later, on Friday, May 3rd, the final attack came. At around 9 p.m., 37-year-old Virgil Starks and his 36-year-old wife, Katie, were in their home on a 500-acre farm 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Virgil was sitting in his armchair reading the newspaper when two shots rang out from outside the home, penetrated the glass, and ended up in the back of his skull. Katie Starks heard the sound and came running into the room, where she watched her husband attempt to stand and then fall back into his chair. Realizing he was dead, she ran to the phone, which was a wall-crank-style phone, 
and attempted to call the police. The phone rang twice before she was shot twice in the face from the same window. Katie fell but got back up and attempted to find the couple's pistol in another room. She was blinded by her own blood and listened to the attacker run out the front door. She then ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. They were out for the night, so she went to a neighbor's home. When they answered the door, she mumbled that Virgil was dead and then collapsed. Katie was rushed to the nearby hospital by her neighbors. She was questioned in the operating room by a local sheriff but couldn't offer much information. In a slight bit of good news, she ended up remarrying and lived until 1994. As the year 1946 came to an end, the Phantom Killer story was the number one story throughout Texas and much of the country. The Texarkana Gazette gave the unknown murderer the nickname after Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were killed in April. When they ran the headline, Phantom Killer eludes officers as investigation of slayings pressed, the name Phantom Killer stuck. Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Lone Wolf Gonzalez had by now become the public face of the investigation. He wasn't a very well-liked man and was accused of taking credit for others' hard work and romancing various female reporters. Gonzalez stated that he and his officers were dealing with a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities. Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley was quoted as saying, The killer is the luckiest person I've ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. Jimmy Hollis, the survivor from the first attack, said, I know he's crazy. The crazy things he said made me feel that his mind was warped. Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, believed that as the police closed in, the killer would continue to make his attacks near the outskirts of town, foregoing his usual lover's lane attacks. And because, well, lots of people were openly racist back then, the psychologist concluded that the killer could not be black because, quote, in general, Negro criminals are not that clever. Brilliant. As far as suspects, the police and FBI had almost too many. Throughout the investigation, almost 400 suspects were arrested. As is the case in many unsolved homicides, there were numerous false confessions. At least nine people claimed to be the phantom killer, but when pressed with questions only the killer would know, failed to answer them correctly. Henry Duty Tennyson was an 18-year-old university freshman who died by suicide on November 4, 1948, leaving behind cryptic instructions which directed investigators to a suicide note in which Tennyson confessed to the Booker, Martin, and Starks murders. He was a trombone player in the same band as Booker, but the pair were not friends. A friend of duty stated that he'd been playing cards together with him when they heard the news of the attacks and that it couldn't have been him. Ralph Bauman, a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force machine gunner, claimed to have been unable to remember a weeks-long period of his life, possibly a form of PTSD from his time in the war. He said that he awoke from the state confused and missing his rifle. After the Starks murder, he hitchhiked to Los Angeles, where he told police that he thought he might be the Phantom Killer. Police labeled him as psychoneurotic and moved on. The man selling the saxophone had bloody clothing, but no saxophone. He was cleared as a suspect after Booker's saxophone was found in the underbrush near where her body had been on October 24th of 1946. There was an escaped German prisoner of war who seemingly vanished into thin air, an unknown hitchhiker a taxi driver, 
and a Texarkana resident given the pseudonym of Sammy, who failed his polygraph test, but only because he was nervous about revealing an affair he was having. On May 7th, the body of Earl McSpadden was found on the Kansas City Southern Railway track 16 miles north of Texarkana. The body's left arm and leg had been severed by a freight train a half hour earlier. The coroner stated that the man had died before being placed on the railroad tracks. Some people believe that McFadden was the Phantom Killer's sixth victim, while others contend that he may have been the Phantom Killer himself and committed suicide by jumping in front of the train. A man named Uel Swinney was and continues to be the prime suspect, with many historians believing him to be the Phantom Killer. At the time of the murders, Swinney had been in and out of trouble his whole adult life. He was 29 at the time, and a known car thief and counterfeiter. He was arrested in July of 1946 for car thefts, and not surprisingly, the murders stopped. After arresting Swinney's wife Peggy, when she showed up to retrieve a stolen car, Peggy confessed in great detail that Swinney was the Phantom Killer and had killed Booker and Martin. As she was interviewed, her story seemed to change, and police could tell she was withholding information. Circumstantial evidence was piling up against Swinney, but they needed Peggy's confession. Peggy Swinney recanted her confession and refused to testify against her husband. Uel Swinney pled guilty to the car theft in order to avoid a trial and was sentenced to prison where he remained until 1974. My money is on Swinney. How about you? Let me know, curator135 at gmail.com. Whoever did it, the case has never been solved, and a majority of the key players have long since passed away. Charles Pierce, a Texarkana native, released The Town That Dreaded Midnight in 1976. In Texarkana, the film is the last to be shown annually during their weekly Movies in the Park, which wraps up the week of Halloween. The Texarkana Department of Parks and Recreation has been doing it since 2003. In 2014, a new adaptation was made with the same title, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It was initially planned as a remake with both Jason Blum of Blumhouse Productions and American Horror Story co-creator Ryan Murphy at the helm. They changed the story into more of a sequel, however. The movie opens with a scene at the local drive-in theater where young adults are watching the annual showing of the 1976 film. That's when two lovebirds leave to go make out and the killings begin again. Filming in Texarkana took place in June of 2013. So the answer is yes. Oftentimes, truth can be stranger than fiction. The town that dreaded sundown, at least the original, stayed fairly true to the story, although the things they changed upset a lot of family members tied to the case. Pierce was taken to court numerous times by the family of the victims, who claimed that the actors and script portrayed their deceased family members in a way that wasn't true. They never won any of those cases. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.